Next on the well of sound, Bob Seeger. Hey, Detroit! Yeah! Best church house, gin house, a little schoolhouse outhouse. On the US 19, hey, the people keep the city clean. They call it that bush. I'm that bush. What's your first memory of Bob Seger? So, I have two. I saw him on TV, some live performance. It was Katmandu. And I, st- I remember like stopping to watch the TV and going like, this dude's cool. <laughs> like, that was it. I was like, something about this sound, like, I dig. That's the first thing I remember. And then the second thing I remember is I, I was too young for Risky Business yeah. So I didn't see Risky Business until, I don't know, maybe like five or ten years ago. And it's awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, I was a big ALF fan. And <sighs> ALF sent up Risky Business and did old-time rock and roll. When I left, you said you were going to behave. But this is not behaving. This is mass destruction. I don't know what happened. I was sitting here doing better than my best. I decided I'd make myself a little snack. The rest is a blur. How can one alien be so irresponsible? I videotaped that episode of ALF and I would rewatch old time rock and roll because I was like, God damn, this is a catchy song. <laughs> Even when the ALF is singing it. Uh, I remember the video for Risky Business. ALF! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Miss ALF. Um, my first Seeger uh, experience was yeah. definitely like a rock. America is still the land. That Chevy commercial. The Chevy commercials that aired forever and yeah, ever yeah, and yeah. ever. And for that reason, for that reason. <laughs> for that reason and because of the risky business thing, which I think VH1 had a video version of it, which was just him sliding around, you know. Yeah. I turned up my nose at Bob Seeger. I get it. I mean I totally was I was wrong. I, I'm wrong about many things in my life, but I was wrong about Bob Seeger in a major way. Well, that's my favorite thing about Seeger is that he's the epitome of 70s classic rock. He's the heartland sound, right? Yep. The heartland rock. Um, and it's, you know, in retrospect, it can be really square stuff. But when I got into him again is when I went to a yard sale and I found the Bob Seger system. You did? Yeah, I found that first album and I was like, what 
is this, and then come to find that there are seven albums before we get to the Bob Seger that everybody knows. Seven albums. It's insane. Like some bands don't make seven albums. There's and he made seven before 1975. Yeah, th- I mean, I remember accusing him to some friend I was, you know, high, obnoxious high school kid. Someone told me they liked Bob Seger and I said, oh, he's just a second-rate Bruce Springsteen. And um, I did not know what on earth I was talking about. Mm. Bruce, I mean... He was way ahead of any of those guys. Yep. In the in the forward to the this book, I, like the only book that's out there about Seeger, uh, John Mellencamp tells a story of how he was riding around with his friends when he was a kid, and like Ramblin' Gamblin' comes on, and he makes them pull over the car to the side of the road and be like, "What is that beat? What is this song?" He's like, "Oh, it's Bob Seeger." He's recording singles. He's in bands as early as 1961, and he's recording singles, releasing singles locally in Michigan as early as 1965. So we made our first LP in the basement of a bowling alley. Yeah, he gets out of high school. Probably in high school, he's in bands. The, the list of bands is The Decibels, The Town Criers, Doug Brown and the Omens. And that's just in a, you know, like probably three or four years time. And, uh, and then he meets somebody who really kicks us off, which is uh, Punch Andrews. Mm. So Punch Andrews is like I think owns a couple clubs in Detroit, right? Some yeah. teen clubs, and yep. he's Punch is a character. He's not just a lot of times you'll read you, there's these stories of these rock and roll guys, and they like they have this manager who gets them off the ground and is with them for like ten years. At which point they sue them because they took all their money or something right. like that. And they, Punch is still with Bob Seger today. Yep. These guys are a duo. He, his making it is the same as my making it yeah, because he had a lot to learn managerially. I had a lot to learn about doing shows and writing songs, you know, sort of developed together. You know, I'd never heard the name Punch Andrews before we prepped nope. for this episode. No. He, but he's also credited as being a producer on all these records, which I think, as I've read a little bit more about it, sounds like it might be um, a kind of a, he's like the producer of the career rather than the sound. Right. But yeah, he meets Punch and he gets him playing. He hears how he sings. Yeah, I think he... he he, Punch knows some other bands around and gets Bob to write some songs for um, some other groups. Mama Cats and the Mushrooms is one band. Yes. Um, that has Glenn Fry, yeah. who's going to factor into this story as well. Um, and I think Punch at one point managed Glenn early on. Mm-hmm. We started to have a band together, and my manager, who was also his manager, his first manager, this is like uh, 1960. 566 uh, said you guys are too headstrong you'll never live uh, live through the, for, for the same band so he wanted to stay separate bands yeah Bob wrote their first single I think the, the uh, yeah is it East Side Story no 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 not East Side Story it's another song that kind of sucks okay but, uh, <laughs> um, but that's his first single it's East Side Story East Side Story and it's great yeah should we play that yeah play it I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like an American version of the animals. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's got it's it's, it's garage rock. Yep. Um, it's got a Detroit sound to it. I mean, this is you know MC Five is is probably very quickly going to be on the scene there. But that's that's you know pretty on par with like good garage rock of the time. Um, it's a it's a Gloria ripoff, <laughs> pretty pretty plainly I feel like. Yeah. But he definitely emulates Van um, early on. You can hear him tr- doing James Brown and Van Morrison. Yeah kind of together as a white guy. James Brown was really the first major influence on me. James Brown, the, uh, used to see him in 1965, 64. He would bring his review into Cobo Hall mm-hmm. in Detroit, mm-hmm. and I'd be one of the few white people in the audience. <laughs> and I'd go and, and see him play, and, and he just so much show, you know, and, and the band would do all these exotic stops and breaks and, and, and high volume and low volume things. Mm-hmm. And uh, dynamics is, is the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. He was a big influence on me. Uh, probably the biggest, you know, hard singing and soulful. But I mean, the big deal here for me is is like his voice. Yeah. It's a gift. It's this this thing that's going to um, be nurtured and and grow across the career. But it's right there at the beginning, man. His voice is something else. Yeah, that's and that's something like his voice is definitely rougher in the early years, but you realize that he's, I had come to know him as this sort of like, you know, a songwriter as well as, you know, the night moves guy and all that stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and image. But, uh, when you really listen to a lot of Bob Seger, what you realize is he's a first thing foremost, kind of a singer. Yeah. He's really, the singing comes first. Everything else comes second. And the great songs that are, that stick with me from the early years, they're mostly great because he sings them so well. And he sings them with authority. He talks about going to these. He talks about. I read, I read him about going to see Ike and Tina. Yep. Um, there's a lot of Ike and Tina. Yeah, I mean, because let's face it. I mean, Tina is a vocal powerhouse, and he probably saw that and and said, you know, that's that's what I want to do. I yeah. Mean, she's a dynamo on stage, and so is James Brown. I mean, you know, it all seeps in as somebody in the audience, and you're seeing these master performers like put on a show. You know, he's learning from the from the best. Yeah, and like if you listen to heavy music, that's his attempt. That's his next big single. Yeah, this on cameo. It he, it had the potential to get him big, but then cameo, the great label, went out of business like right as it was taking off. We kept calling him for like a week. And heavy sets, music was the record. Yeah, was heavy out. music was the record. It was sixty six on Billboard with a bullet. And uh, we called him one Monday morning, no answer. Called all day, no answer. The next day, no answer. Called the phone company, you know. They hadn't even disconnected the phones yet. Finally, we figured something's wrong here, so we got on a plane, me and Punch, and uh, there was the offices were all padlocked because there'd been uh, the stock of Cameo Parkway had risen phenomenally. And uh, is it the FCC that looks into that? Or the FTC, uh, FTC, the FTC? Federal Trade Commission, I think. Okay, the FTC clamped the company shut until they could investigate the stock. Just when your record was Just when it was
right. It's like it's 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 smashing up against each other. It's like the Icantina review sound startup, and then the chorus is like an animal's uh, chorus. And he's he's got like a, um, you can hear him designing it for a show. Like yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah. playing live enough that he's like designing this to have like these peaks and valleys and yeah, yeah. to be something that they can really go nuts on. Yeah. And like jam out on like you, you that, that bass line could go on forever with him just sort of scatting over it. Yeah. And then in other, you know, other songs, probably more in, in East Side Story, which we heard before, they've got the, those sort of wicked uh, music machine guitars that that are. A little bit on the darker side. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, Skeff all got this Detroit grit to it. Yeah, there's for no sure. question. And then you know, around that time, he does a single called "Persecution Smith," Ugh. which is just a straight up Dylan ripoff. Dylan ripoff <laughs> to the max. And then... It's it's kind of funny to hear him do it, and you can understand why these things weren't issued. But the, the, the heavy music is a great single, but it's also a dry run for Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. That's the first. So that's then his second close grab at at success. Yeah, that prom the album Ramblin' Gamblin' Man with Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. So, Which Motown was going to, uh, they wanted to sign him too and pay him more money. Right. But he decides to go with Capitol because he thinks it fits his sound more. The straight people liked Motown, you know, and the uh, uh, rough guys, which is what we were, <laughs> went for people like Otis Redding and Garnett and Mims and Solomon Burke, James Brown. Um, that was really what we liked. But I know that he huh. goes with them, and it's supposed to be called Tales of Lucy Blue, which I think is a cooler album title. And, and matches sense. the cover. It matches the cover. <laughs> which but is like, awesome. But it, like, you know, uh, that's, that song takes off. So let me, let me tell you, this is what, what turned things around for me on Bob Seger was not uh, anyone actually particularly like a friend saying, oh, you've got to listen to this or that. Yeah. It was the all music guide. This, uh-huh. this the website and slash book that we that is become right. so important as a reference. Stephen Thomas Erlewine, the guy who sort of started it and writes half the reviews. I remember stumbling across a, a list of like the twenty his twenty favorite rock and roll singles, his twenty favorite ones. Period of wow. any kind, or that are most representative of the genre or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there was not one but two Bob Seegers on a twenty person a twenty song list. And what was the other one? It was Get Out of Denver and Rambling Gambling. Okay. And so I was like, what are these songs? I never heard these songs. Right. Because Partly because they were completely out of print. Yes. And That's so, the big thing here is that these first seven albums... Seven! Seven! <laughs> you have to work hard to own these albums physically, to have them in your hands. You still do. Yeah. In 2019, you do. Right. And uh, but Rambling Gambling Man starts out with this beat that's like larger than life. It sounds like nothing else. Yeah. Um, and and there's like an incredible video of him playing it like on a local TV show, and he's got this floppy hair and no beard, and he's uh, I think Glenn Fry sings backup on that song. Yep, yep. He dips into the story again here. But the song is like them sort of posturing. I don't know if they're actually rambling or gambling at all, but they're. Well, here's another thing that that happens there with Rambling Gambling Man is Bob's very attuned to like to rock and like what the ingredients are and. Ramblin' and gambling <laughs> just fit the world of, of rock and roll, along with these wicked drums, which we gotta play. Let's play.
never want to turn that song off ever when it comes on. Nope, it's great. And I found out there's a there's a video uh, that I watched an interview with him. It's from the the 90s, I feel like, and he's talking about. Um, you know, this is this is heyday and maybe a little bit past. He's talking about recording a song with um with like Don Henley and maybe like Tom Petty. I I don't know what the reason was for the for, for this song, is but um, he said that he didn't he didn't want to like overtake the song because he was just in there as backing vocals, and uh, and so he's holding back, and that the engineer was like Bob, you know, you're you're holding back. Can can you give us something? And he's like, oh, you want the mountain. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he calls it the mountain. His voice. His voice is the mountain. <laughs> I didn't know that. Isn't that great? I, know that. I know that to be a drummer for the Bob Seger system that recorded that song, yeah. Pep Perrine is his yeah, name. Yeah. He had this long blonde hair. He was known for having, uh, you know, Ginger Baker of Blind Faith uh, mm-hmm. and Cream had... Um, a two bass drum kit. Okay. And so Pepperine over there in Detroit decides he wants four bass drums. Jesus. And so anytime, and you get the sense they did it just for the beginning of Rambling Gamblin' Man. So anytime they played, and they were touring nonstop for like, whatever, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, they're lugging around, at least for the four or five years of the system. Or right. Around, they're lugging around four, <laughs> four bass drums that they have to set up every single night so they can like fill a stadium with the sound of Rambling Gamblin' Man. So, I mean, that's going to be a theme here for this, this, you know, the first 10 years of his career is like hoofing it. Like they are working hard. And, um, you know, we were talking about Punch Andrews that, um, you know, he, he kind of gets blamed for why it took so long for, for Bob to take off. I don't think there was mismanagement. I think uh, the thing is we never took the route of being subsidized. We never wanted to be in the hole to a record company to where if we left, other record companies would say, oh, we lost a bundle on those guys. So we took the uh, opinion of making our LPs, well, too fast, really, but, you know, just trying to hold our expenses down. And, you know, probably driving 8 million miles and stuff, uh, not having very good equipment, uh, not having a, a, a large crew to take care of us and stuff. Uh, we could have been subsidized with all that stuff. Maybe uh, it took me that long to be a good writer, too. I don't know. I always had this thing, um, and I still do, that, you know, basically I'm a rocker. You know, uh, I'll, I'll write some ballads because I know uh, I should. You know, it, it helps to, you know, to set up the rock and roll, you know, but really deep down, I'm sort of a rocking fool. <laughs> I mean, they're blue collar to the core and like, they're going to pay their own way. They're going to hoof it. They're going to drive and they are just working their asses off Yeah, for 10 years. And then the next 10 years are no easier, but, but it, he, he, yeah, punch does get blamed for it a lot. And you know, they clearly have a different ethos. Yeah. Like I was wondering and sort of studying more about Bob Seger cause there's, it needs to be said, like, not only are those albums not in print, those like, there's still about five of those records that are not in print, and a couple that maybe shouldn't be in print, but three of them that really should be in print. But there's no Bob Seger box set, there's no Bob Seger biography, there's no Bob Seger documentary, and there's no Bob Seger concert films. Yeah. And, and Bob Seger only started streaming on any services last 
year in 2018. So it's, um, they're following their own uh, uh, rhythm, I guess. Those two. Those two. And they're not, they've been doing it for so long. I mean, maybe they're just the well-adjusted one and everyone else is just greedy. Could be. Full of it. But um, there's something like at, at this point, you look at it and you're like, this is singular and it's kind of eccentric and strange right. that there's none of these for someone who's considered to be so regular or kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, middle of the road, yeah. American, uh, rock star. Uh, he hasn't acted that way yeah. commercially. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, he could sort of flaunt his early, <clears throat> early eccentricities, but, but he doesn't or he's taking his time he could he's, totally pick up his a huge... answer for for the question of like where is this stuff is like sorry like i'll get to it <laughs> <laughs> no, it's yeah. like, I'm, i may i may i'm not ready to re-release it yeah i mean and so you know in part maybe he's right you know there's a lot of mistakes in these albums so the the, the next one we'll talk about after rambling gambling man is called noah which is a travesty a it's bit. awful um he brought on a singer songwriter named tom neem who i guess wrote some of this stuff he didn't just write some of it he wrote like eight of the ten songs bob only writes two songs and they're both great there's one yeah. called death row and one called noah and they're both pretty great but i was thinking like oh do i really need to search this out and then i look at the credits i'm like no like eight of the songs are written by this other guy who's he was um someone convinced him to let this happen i don't even know why it was called the bob seeger system because uh he had seemed to be just he's on the cover the wheel too. yeah he's on the cover it's like it false advertising yeah um and then comes mongrel and it has a, a few good i used Mongrel's to have that, pretty great that album i, I it, it slipped out of my grasp it's somewhere along the way good cover evil edna's pretty fun uh, Lucifer. Lucifer. That yeah. song is incredible. And he references Rambo Gambleman. <laughs> Mongrel has River Deep Mountain High. For a white vocalist to try River Deep Mountain High, and that was like purposely written as a song that would be very hard to sing. And yeah. like the only person Spectre could think of to sing it would be Tina Turner. So he does it. And I always thought he kind of, uh, it, he almost gets it. Like he doesn't, it's not a go-to for me. But yeah, I think Lucifer is an awesome song. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that's a pretty great record. Um, and but then he he tries something different next. Brand new morning, which is uh, what is it like seventy one? It's like pure singer songwriter. Like James a, Taylor yeah, must have just like hit in a huge way, and he's going. It's just Bob and a guitar, and it is <laughs> strummy. Yeah, it's strummy. He really doesn't like. He's embarrassed by that record, and that's why that one's probably never coming out. And you know, truth be told. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, Mongrel is awesome. It should be out. Brand New Morning, I don't think is actually, we're missing that much. I've heard a couple songs on there. and like, It's meandering. It's okay. There's pictures of him. The best thing about it is the pictures of him in the studio with no shirt on and jeans and like flip-flops and, and you know, long hair, just like strumming out these songs. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a misfire at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think he's like figuring himself out as you know, in the wake of two almost hits, um, he's he's chasing some stuff. I feel like, um, and uh, also he's got this thing where he's uh, grateful to have a band and people that want to work around him, and so he kind of lets. The, these bands or whatever collection of people he has have their songs and lets it be a democratic process and I think that gets in the way of of his career basically yeah t totally I think he's um, uh, 
He's not. A, he's not a big. Uh, he does not seem to have a very big ego, uh, like remotely. And he, he. He. Then he cycles through like three different bands. There, I'm trying to find. He joins up them. with T Garden and Van Winkle, yeah. um, a duo who had a hit. Rolls um, right off the tongue. Called. Uh, uh, God, love, and rock and roll. Ooh, um, it's you know, it's it sounds like something that would come out then. That's about <laughs> all I can say. STK, as it's called, Seeger Tea Garden, and oh, really? Skip Nape was Skip Van Winkle. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then they uh, record smoking OPs. Yes. Smoking other people's. That's what it's meant. That's what OPs is. Oh, really? For. Okay. I was smoking wondering. other people's cigarettes. See. Okay. And they they have this incredible cover that's designed like a Lucky Strike. Uh, and uh, that that heavy music makes it onto that, but it's mostly like the "If I Was a Carpenter" is pretty good. That's that's on there. Hummingbird he covers. Hummingbird. He plays. I love the one you're with, which is pretty recent. At yeah, that point. he gets some organ back in the situation, which is is welcome after the strumathon. The strumathon. I mean, we're not even gonna play from Blue Morning, a brand new morning. Is there anything you want to play from uh, Smoking Ops? Um. Because I think we should just go straight into Back in 72. Let's do Back in 72. So he has a new band. So Tea Garden and Van Winkle say goodbye. Yes. Um, and uh, he records part of this uh, at uh, also, Muscle Shoals. Yeah. And this is this is one thing I certainly didn't realize until I dove deep into Seeger. His great run of albums. Yeah. His amazing run of albums, which is basically from, from Back in 72, I would say, until... Um, at least Stranger in Town. Yeah. Possibly against, against the, wind. the Wind. I would probably end it at Stranger in Town. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Muscle Shoals rhythm section plays heavily, heavily into it. And, you know, they're like, I, you're always thinking about Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, but, you know, and I, th- I think one of the guys, Drew Abbott, the, the guitarist for the Silver Bullet Band, ends up leaving because he gets so sick of Bob using these other session musicians. But Bob, remember, was this soul music aficionado, and he loved that sound. Yeah, be, and 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 so back in '72 is the first uh, album where he uses. I think he get, he didn't realize how much he was paying. He only uses it, yeah, gets he, them for three songs. Right, he can't afford the Swampers. <laughs> the Swampers, David Hood. Yeah. Um, the and do you know which which songs they record? I couldn't figure it out. I want to. I want to believe it's "Turn the Page," which is on there. <laughs> which That's, is on there. The studio version of "Turn the Page" is on back in seventy. Now this is the one that people think it's the biggest. Uh, it's the meanest trick that he's playing on people that he has not released this ever on mm. CD. Not ever. Not once has it been on set, compact disc, which means it's never been mastered for digitally or anything. So, but because back in seventy two, I think is unbelievably good. And as we talked about with um, uh, Thin Lizzy, uh, Rosalie's on it and clearly had a big influence on a lot of people. They covered it. So many people cover it. Um, and yet you can't hear the uh, the Seeger version unless you search it out on YouTube. What's so strange about the Rosalie is that it's a very... I, I didn't realize it at the time because I love the Thin Lizzy version, but it's such a specific song. It's written about a woman named Rosalie who controlled all of the uh, radio programming around Detroit. Yeah, she was like a hit maker. She could sort of predict and she wouldn't what was going to be him. great. And so he wrote this song and then she started playing him because he had written this amazing song about her. I always thought that was kind of endearing. What's interesting about Rosalie too is it all 
also, I, I still think he's trying to sort out his sound on Back in 72. Mm-hmm. Um, he admires a, 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 a lot of different musicians, and, and you hear it um, uh, in, in Back in 72. But Rosalie in particular sounds like something from Exile on Main Street. Here we go with Rosalie. How about it? <laughs> It's very cut and dry. She likes music. She knows music. I know music too, you see. She's got the power. She's a teen queen, Rosalie. And it's a great song, but it's uh, the fact that it would get covered so much uh, cracks me up. I like the Midnight Rider cover that's on there. The original Turn the I, Page. I, you don't like I, it? It's, I think it's kind of a mess. Okay. Well, this. I'll tell you this, though, uh, Lex. Um, back in 72, the song. Yes! It's uh, my... Uh, it's, it, it, spoiler alert! It's in my top five. That's awesome, and it always has been, and it always will be. It's the top five. It's one of the top five in my heart, in fact. It's great. Um, I like so. I wrote you a song. I think that's nice. It's great. It's a great. I mean, Neon Sky is good. Yeah. Right. He's still he's still finding his way there, but he's he's it's it's um. I think uh, there's What's the last track on that album. Is that Neon Sky? No, it's um. I've got time. I've got time. I was raised. Taught to hurry. Oh, I've been hurrying, worrying all my days. But now, as I'm getting old, I think I'm. I remember at one point we were living in one room with bunk beds and my brother and I were sleeping up top. My mother was sleeping down below and the only money we had coming in was from my brother working as a pack boy at a supermarket. My mother cleaning houses and I was going to junior high, you know. There's a couple of, we'll, we'll get to it later, but there's a couple of autobiographical songs, clearly. Yeah. Uh, I th- and I think back in 72 is all about when he was he went to a college around the time of Noah he decided it wasn't working he went to college for like a semester to Michigan State and became a fraternity brother and wrote this whole song about back in 72 apparently was the like what was it was it's about and tricky dick he played it slick just as like I knew he would back in 72 that's so um, great but in back in 72 he meets Alto Reed oh, um, oh I forget who is gonna be pretty important Alto Reed Alto Reed we love you Alto Reed yeah Alto Reed is one of the reasons uh, also I think why people uh, equate 
um, equate Seeger with Springsteen. Yeah. Because they both got these sax guys. You can't have uh, a sax guy and not use him. That <laughs> is is both a, a boon and a problem, I think. I know. I mean, I remember definitely hanging out with some some people in, in the early in college who basically said if there's a saxophone on it I don't want to know about it like <laughs> I, I'm just not interested at all and I like the way saxophone is used on all the old Phil Spector songs yeah um, and yet uh, turn the page like I I think the sax soars baby <laughs> like that's does. what's brilliant about that it song among does. other things but um, no that's a great great song it is the definition of road weariness I would say and, and we can talk about it a little bit more with with live bullet but I would say the studio version um, is easy to miss you don't see the potential in the song in this in the studio. Yeah, version. I wanted to be the person always that was like, no, the studio version's nah. better. Like you've never heard, and like after a, I can't say that it is. No. And he, by the way, he's always he, he although he does a full cover album on all of these records, he's got covers of other people's songs. Not only Midnight Rider, he's got Steeler, which everyone covers. It's a free song. It's a good song. And uh, you know, Rod Stewart has covered the Faces cover that. It makes sense that he covers a free song. I mean, Paul Rogers' voice is so distinctive, so huge. Tina's voice is so huge. James Brown is so huge. It makes sense that he tackles these songs but that they are also, sort of gigantic. And they also have that. Um, you know, scratchy yes. quality that Seeger's got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because Rod Stewart's another one that people actually compare him to. Right. Because um, I think, and, and I didn't hear it for a long time. I was like, wait a second. He is, he is a lot like, they're very similar. You know who else has it? And it was killing me. I was trying to figure this out. And I feel like he's he was coming up at around the same time. And there's going to be some crossover later that we can sort of figure out. But Kenny Rogers, man. <laughs> <laughs> First edition is has not at this point has not yet broken up and Kenny Rogers has not yet gone solo yet and he hasn't done the gambler. Um, but thematically there's some stuff going on with Kenny Rogers that, that kind of matches Seeger. then Kenny covers We've Got Tonight oh, in the yeah. 80s. And that becomes a big hit for him. Big hit. Huge hit. Probably bigger than Seeger's, I think. Well, um, but yeah, Seven comes. The the seventh album is uh, is called Seven. And, <laughs> and it comes in 1973, I think. Yes, 74. 74, sorry. And around this time, you know, a Seeger, his playing on these tours with absolutely everyone that we love. I mean, he he has uh, Alice Cooper opening for him at one point. Oh, and then in 1974, he opens for Kiss. When they were just starting out, that was an interesting audience to find. <laughs> I didn't think Kiss's audience would be Bob Seger's audience. They were very young, you know. And so uh, occasionally we go to... Uh, I remember, I think it was Philadelphia Spectrum, and uh, we started playing about 20 minutes earlier. It was gas, gas, gas. You know, the, the Kiss Army. And yeah. So. But, uh, but they were really, every act, I must say, was really kind to us. And uh, as a matter of fact, though, those guys came back and apologized to us after our show and stuff. But we did about 70 uh, shows with those guys. They were really nice guys. And it's a big national, it's one of the th reasons he broke in the rest of America. It's still a few years away. But he's opening for that's Kiss. Like the, that's the Alive tour, probably, around then, right? Because remember, Alive is, is at Cobo Hall. That's also yes. where Live Bullet is. Right. And, uh, yeah, I guess they sort of 
dug him. So also we should point out that for seven, the silver bullet band comes together and he has finally found a band that kind of suits him uh, both live and in the the studio. Well, when I got when I got the Silver Bullet Band, they were just a lot better band, and they did have the subtleties and the chops to get quiet and, and bring them across. The mainstays of the Silver Bullet Band are out to read Chris Campbell and um, and Drew Abbott, from what I understand. Okay. Though Drew Abbott like quits around against the wind time. Okay. But hey, from seven, can we we gotta put we gotta put Get Out of Denver out there? Yeah, it's so good. Do studio it. Studio version. best song chuck berry never wrote I, mean, I, I totally agree i don't know what to say it's like I, I like it better than any of the chuck berry songs i know and i like yeah, a lot of those chuck berry songs but um i love get out of denver it's also got one of the best titles of any rock song ever the sound is definitely come coming together however it is not yet the seeger sound that everybody knows yeah and i was sort of obsessed with this i was like what mm. happens between Seven in 1974 and Beautiful Loser in 1975, which has essentially, he pioneers the Heartland sound that, as you said, Mellencamp is, is going to um, ride out. Um, and I was like, is it Springsteen? Like, no, Springsteen's sort of happening at the same time. And Springsteen I was stuff like, at this time sounds nothing like this. It's nothing like this. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I, I was like, oh, Outlaw. Country is happening at the same time, so there's a little bit of a Waylon influence, and, and that makes sense, but I was like, it's still not it. What is it? And I was like, oh my God, it's the Eagles. Of course. I, I'm not thinking, because he and Glenn Fry are not only grew up together, yes. they're like, remain good friends. Seeger yeah. writes, co-writes Heartache Tonight. I didn't know that. I love that. I didn't know that. Did you know know how uh, 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 that happens? So uh, Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther, who who writes a bunch of Eagles songs as well, um, they're struggling on this song. Um, They're uh, trying to figure out. They've got the beginning of it, and Glenn says, let's call up Bob. They call him up, and they sing him what they've got, and Bob just goes right into the chorus. It's going to be a heartache tonight. Uh. Of course. Uh-huh. Isn't that great? That's his chorus. Yeah, that's Yeah, that his makes chorus. perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, um, and I remember around this time, Glenn is getting, but because that Heartache Tonight's later. I think it's 1980 even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but, lo- the um, long run. Around this time, the Eagles have started to take off. Desperados happened, at least. And um, we're still a few years away from Hotel California. But yes. Glenn has gotten big enough that he comes back to Detroit, and he's like, listen, it is time for yes. someone to record Bob Seger properly. I can't believe he's still touring. He's still still touring like it's like 260 nights a year or something like that, and he's still only he's huge in Michigan, right? But nowhere else, right? The story is in 1976, Bob plays a concert in Detroit for 80,000 people, and the next night goes to Chicago, very close by, Mm -hmm. and his crowd is less than a thousand. 
God. So you can't imagine that it was sort of today's internet monoculture or whatever you want to say. Right. That didn't exist. It's the, but it's the way that Springsteen was so big in New Jersey. Seeger was that big in Michigan and Florida randomly. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. He was huge in Florida. I think there were good DJs in Florida, basically. Yeah. Well, they, and I think uh, Campbell comes out and he's sort of, I mean, because uh, Punch is, no one feels like he's quite been recorded well. Right. And maybe it's, it's they, they get Muscle Shoals in there to basically do the entire record. In for beautiful beautiful loser. loser. Right. And that's April 1975 it comes out. And that's, that's, a, that's a, it's only nine songs. And I think, but I think there's also something else that's going on here is like, he has been trying to make it work for so long, messing around with a bunch of different sounds and it really comes together here. And I think he, he partially, he needed a model and that sort of quasi Western thing, um, uh, the the romanticism sort of the slow the slow songs um, that the Eagles do so well I think he zeroed in on it and saw that it was a success and it's happening then and he's like the, uh, uh, it's time for me he's, yeah he's fed up he talks about you know basically he he got sidetracked he got kind of he screwed himself over by being into Clapton and Beck early on and getting obsessed with noodling guitar and stuff like that. So when I saw these guitar players, I really got into playing guitar. And getting into lead guitar, I I began to write a lot of riff rock, which is very one-dimensional kind of music, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I did that for about five years because I was just really fascinated by the guitar because I saw those guys play and they just blew my brains out you know it was like oh yeah i can sing but wouldn't it be great if i could sing and play guitar you know and um so i spent about five years uh wasted about five years (laughs) trying to be uh the the guitar hero you know Uh and instead um he's he's has the opportunity to do these sort of straight ahead songs and beautiful loser like the sound uh solidifies there Mm -hmm. And it's a great sound. I mean, uh, it's worth noting that he this is he he does a um, Nutbush City Limits Tina Tina the song that Tina not only sang but wrote. He does a great version of it on there. But I think that he needed encouragement to to actually the so, the song Beautiful Loser, which yeah. is a slower song. He needed Glenn Fry was the one who basically said you can not only record that song, you can put it first. Yeah, and he was about to bail on on these songs and that song in particular, just like he was about to quit, you know, like two times before as you mentioned, he went back to college for for a spell. But um but yeah, Glenn Fry was like do this one. Should we play it? Yeah. a dream like a young man with the wisdom of an old man he wants his home and security he wants to live like a sailor at sea beautiful loser Oh my goodness! Right? It's an you, eagle song. You're, it's an eagle song. 
<laughs> I am, I am learning his. something as it's we speak. It's his. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a sweetness there. Um, he's embracing who he has been, which is a beautiful loser yeah. uh, for 10 years. Um, but he gets right into the chorus, like mm-hmm. wastes no time. He realizes there's a package here. Johnny, and come ha- lately. <laughs> <laughs> and how to deliver it. I was, I was so satisfied when I was like, I knew it. You got it. That's some detective work. Yeah. Um, I think on that record, my favorite song, though, has become since, I mean, Katmandu's on there. It's a great tune. Yep. Um, my favorite song is Mama. <laughs> I love Mama. Mama is like not autobiographical. My ass, you know. Exactly. This is, exactly. It's about him and his brother and his mama. Here we go. Exactly. I was the baby brother. I was the quiet other, and I remember mother so well. I was the little stranger. I never was in danger I could have had a manger Pray tell But oh how she could control me And when I was bad she'd scold me Sometimes she wouldn't hold me And I'd cry But mama she never told me a lie Mama, she never told me a lie. I mean, I love the way the drums sound. I think it's a perfect melding of like old Seeger and new Seeger. Yeah. His voice doesn't sound at all affected. Um, and he's singing this kind of song about how his mom was not that nice to him, but also never, <laughs> really? never lied to him. She's like, she used to beat me. She used to like, you know, she would say mean things to me, but she, she never lied. A powerhouse because he talks about like staying out late and going to parties. Like it's clear he's like a teenager. He's like 16 or 17 and he comes back and mom is making him cry. She's like yelling at him so hard. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great song. It's a great one. Um, Jody girl's on there. I love Jody girl. Live bullet is what really what breaks him open. Cause it's that tour. Yeah. It's the beautiful loser tour. They play Cobo hall and they do live bullet. And that is sort of like, he almost is summing up his first 12 years at this point because it's 1976 and he'd been recording since 1964 basically yeah and uh that's what he does play rambling gammon man he plays heavy music so he's like hey um i think looking back it's beautiful loser the year that he wins best new artist at the grammys though oh really Uh, something like that best new artist and like everyone's like why best new artist he's been playing for longer than any of these people but um he does that amazing live version of uh, Turn the Page, of course, and the amazing live version of Nutbush City Limits. Yep. And it's just an electrifying show. And that's where Turn the, that's the Turn the Page people know that's where it comes from. Yeah. And, man, there is a, there is a huge difference between the studio version and the live version. I mean, the live version, his voice, the studio version, you hear some... Uh, uh, trepidation in his voice, I'd say. Yeah. Live version. He is. It's the mountain. I mean, it's the mountain, man. It's the mountain. He's got some pipes. I love his voice. Yeah. I love it. And the wonderful thing about that song is uh, it's just really well written. I mean, the imagery, the senses that happen, uh, the progression of the story and the saxophone like it's a perfect song when you're riding 16 hours and there's nothing much to do 
And you don't feel much like riding You just wish the trip was through See, here I am On the road again There I am Up on the stage Here I go Playing star again There I go Turn the page Should we go on to the, the, the major, the smash? Night moves. Night moves. That one took about eight months. Eight months to write a song. Yeah. I mean, the album, I mean the song. The song. Yeah. It took that long to write to finish it. I wrote, uh, well, I didn't work on it day and night for eight months. I, I go back to it, you know, now and then. But it had an eight-month gestation period. I uh, wrote the first verse. I got really stuck for the second verse took me about uh, two months to write the second verse and then I was stuck for about six months didn't know where to take it you know and uh, I got the idea from Bruce's Jungle Land where he just stopped the tempo and sort of said what he wanted to say and then started it up again and this is something I, I wasn't prepared for uh, that I've always liked the song Night Moves but um, when I tell you it's my least favorite song on the record I was not I was surprised to find that I got no problem with that. Like I like the song, maybe it's because I've heard it too many times. Maybe Main Could Street, be. maybe Main Street, I don't like. But the song uh, "Rock and Roll Never Forgets" is fantastic, and there's there's the live version of him. There is a video of him doing it in what looks like a really well filmed concert video, which I wish would come out, of him doing "Rock and Roll Never Forgets," and I think 1978, and it is fantastic. But probably my favorite tune on here uh, is the "Fire Down Below." You want to play it? Yeah, can we play it? Yeah, because I got some questions for you after. that song what do you know about ain't got no money which is on uh strangers in town which is a frankie miller cover right yeah let's talk about this because i love that song too um but it turns out all of these guys were obsessed with frankie miller yeah frankie miller is a scottish guy Yeah, we talked about him for thin lizzy we talked about him for thin lizzy because he sings on uh still in love with you i think yeah, and he's the one that like got Brian. Oh, Robertson he's the one that started into, like, that Robbo fight. <laughs> but he like re- produces like I don't know five or six albums, and like he's he's known as he's known as Elton John's. I'm oh, sorry, um, as Rod Stewart's favorite singer. Rod yeah. Stewart covers like two songs of his too. Yeah, and then uh, he's clearly a huge influence on uh, Seeger, and he yeah. sounds like Seeger. Mm-hmm. I I happen to like Seeger's version of the, of Ain't Got No Money more. It, 
does, it sounds a lot like Fire Down Below. Yeah, it? <laughs> it does. It does. I, I, like, when I listened to both of them, I was like, which one's which? And then I guess Fire Down Below is his version of writing Ain't Got No Money by Frankie okay. Miller. Okay, I just thought it was so strange that he puts it on the next album just right in there. I, don't know, it's, I, I guess they're companions. That's yeah. all you can say. Well, then there's Sunspot Baby, which is like a funny song that kind of sounds like the Stones it, it, but via Muscle Shoals. I love that too. Right. Um, so and and on uh, Night Moves has Sunburst, which oh, yeah. I like. I like that song. That's, a, that's another song, kind of about rock and roll. He he tends to write. I mean, he write turn the pages about rock and roll. Sunspot, I think, is about like yep being alone in the spotlight. Yep. And then you know. And then every album has a rocker. Come to Papa is on Night Moves too. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Papa. <laughs> that's written, co-written by Willie Mitchell. You know who did uh, a lot of stuff with Al Green. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, then then we the, six times platinum is where we're at at that. So it, it like then then that's his sort of best selling outside of his like greatest hits. Then you go into Stranger in Town. Yeah, just two years later. I mean, he's still he is the working man. Uh, rock star in that he continues to pump these things out so something happens there which is so he talks about it of, of it's kind of it's the platinum blues in a way it's like night moves is a platinum album but now he has to become a platinum artist mm. um and they spend longer in the studio for stranger in town than on any previous album <laughs> like all together basically and but maybe it has to do with the fact that he's he's using the silver bullet band um uh again right they they were on night yeah moves. they're 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 on so they're getting becoming sort of a high functioning um team at this point he's still but, got muscle shoals though in stranger in town oh really yeah okay. till it shines is all muscle shoals i love that song that's a great song and that's i mean this is the one hollywood nights is, opens it and then we've got old time rock and roll which i did not realize that at Alf least, sang. At least <laughs> that according to uh seeger he uh co-wrote it and didn't take credit he says the dumbest movies ever made. He never took credit for. Uh, he it was Who gets credit. For it? it was a Muscle Shoals. It was like one of the songwriters down to Muscle Shoals like oh. had it, and um, I think I think it was uh, what's his name um, uh, George Jackson who's written it, written a ton of stuff. Oh. And uh, Seeger gets it. He's like, okay, I like it, but I'm gonna rewrite it. And yeah. He rewrites it and records it, but doesn't take any credit for it. And he's huh. like, that's the dumbest thing he's well, ever done. I will say, you know, there's a reason why at whatever seven or eight years old I was like this song has me <laughs> like he's writing about good old time rock and roll but I, I would say it stands up with those old time rock and roll songs like it is it's a bopper it's a bopper but I can see why it sort of appeals to little kids too yeah it's very safe yeah 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 um, though in the song that I like on here and I really wish he'd gone further in this direction going forward I think the famous final scene is fantastic it's like his attempt at like a, a Springsteen's like Jungle Land because at this point he is listening to Springsteen yeah at this point they are colleagues for they're, sure they're he says them back, backstage but he came way before Bruce Springsteen but then they're you know they're sort of similar concerns they respect each other they listen to each other's albums I, I was having a lot of hit singles and Bruce was selling a lot of albums every single one of his albums had gone to number one but he wasn't having big hit singles and so he ran uh, 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 I 
can't remember the, the title of the song, but Got a Wife and Kids in Baltimore, Jack. Remember that, mm -hmm. that song? He ran uh, that song by me, and he was concerned that there were background singers on it, and would it be too commercial? <laughs> I said, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think anybody, no one's ever going to accuse you of being commercial, Bruce. <laughs> you know, you just got too much integrity and everything. And uh, so I was happy to, yeah, to review a couple of his things. And, and also, uh, Born in the USA. I was one of the first people to hear that song. I heard it a year and a half before it came out. I said, that's a smash. And a famous final scene is sort of like a, is like a scenes from an Italian restaurant yeah, kind yeah. of song. It's a beautiful tune. Uh, maybe, can we play a yeah, little bit of that? Yeah, let's do it. Think in terms of bridges burned. Think of seasons that must end See the rivers rise and fall They will rise and fall again Everything must end Like an ocean to a shore like a river to a stream Like a river to a stream It's the famous final scene I, I really like to write other people's stories. Uh, I remember in 78 when I wrote the famous final scene, I, everybody called me up and said, are you breaking up, you know? <laughs> and I said, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved movies, so that I have a, maybe a, a sort of a cinematic uh, imagination, as it were, you know? So famous final scene was about that, that instant of the breakup when you know, oh boy, it really is over and I gotta go. And... Um, if you can if you can define those little moments i think it's fun you know and it's informative and and maybe it's worthwhile then he then he spends even longer in the studio yep for against the wind yep i've always loved against the wind the song mm -hmm. but it's it, you hear his voice is his voice is smoother everything's kind of smoother yep um though it what's ironic i guess is that that record's got her strut which is one of his like heaviest songs i mean it sounds like can we listen to the live version oh, that comes I love on to watch a stroke <laughs> nine tonight it's uh it shows up on the live album i i love this song <laughs> Definitely got the mountain working for him on that track. He does, and you have to accept this part of Bob Seger, basically. Like this is what um, 
half of what the fans love as as these these rockers and uh you know it's hilarious too i'm like alone in the fact that i think the horizontal bop is awesome i love that song i think it's great people i read the review they're like this is the only for a guy who opens every record with an amazing song the horizontal bop just isn't in the same league and i think it's awesome um, I, of course, I have to recommend that you watch the YouTube video that has Alto Reed shaking those maracas. Like <laughs> he basically has two trees of maracas in his hand, <laughs> tight pants, and a silk shirt, and he has got the moves down. And you see Bob like in full effect. That's from Nine Tonight, which I think is like '79, late '70s. Their live show is something to see. I mean, so. For as much love as Live Bullet gets, I think Nine Tonight is is just as exciting. And maybe it's because I was sometimes feel because Live Bullet, no one knew those songs because yeah. they, they've been buried so much. And so you're like, oh, that's the only place to hear Get uh, okay. Out of Denver. But for me, Nine Tonight, he takes all these songs which have been more studio-fied, have been a little bit more careful, and they just kind of go nuts. Like, I love the song itself, Nine Tonight. I think the live version of All Time Rock and Roll is great. I think the live version of Rock and Roll Never Forgets is a badass. The Fire yeah. Down Below, he's singing like his voice sounds like old Bob sort of... Um, Letting it rip. And he's still doing, you know, he's still doing the song Against the Wind, You'll Accompany Me, these songs that are kind of becoming his stock and trade, his calling card, which are sort of mid-tempo, driving, a coming of age, uh, cinematic. There's, they're very cinematic. Yeah. And they're all, every man, you know, every man and every woman feel like a number is, is about the line, you know, mm. it's about going through the grind and not being appreciated. Rock and roll never forgets is... You know, you ain't what you used to be, but once that song comes on, man, yeah, rock and roll right doesn't forget there. who you are. <laughs> um, then, like, we're he's he's up to the distance, which is sort of a uh, you can you get the sense he's getting tired. Yeah. there's been a lot of activity for a long, long time. The distance is sort of a concept record about relationships, and yeah, I think the song even now is one I really like, and I like the song "House Behind a House." Um, I know a handful of these, like uh, "Roll Me Away" and "and You'll Accompany Me," which is on "Against the Wind" from the Greatest Hits collection that I listened to over and over in high school. But that doesn't mean that yeah, they're good songs. <laughs> I think even even and this is the first time he gets in an outside producer. Uh, he gets Jimmy Iovine on there, um, but then he sort of walks away for a while. I mean, like this is the beginning of Seeger being like Hermit Seeger, Hermit Seeger, or Hermit maybe just well-adjusted Seeger yeah. deciding like this has been because he's been in the public eye like heavily now for about eight years yeah but before that there's another 10 years that people haven't seen and this is a long long career so he comes back with like a rock it's got um you know it's got uh american storm which i think is great um it's got a very 80s sound which is it's kind of it ties people up for that reason i mean when you want to hear aftermath aftermath when you think of like um him sounding like Springsteen. I mean, American Storm is a Springsteen song, basically. Yeah. Here it is. Getting out on some uncharted path You soon turn back It happens time and time again You never seem to reach the end Someone's out there on the street tonight When things go wrong You're guaranteed to make them right If the price is right I like the song. Yeah, it's not gonna like, it's not gonna win any awards. No, I'm uh, it's lulling. The fact that he writes <laughs> like a rock, uh, he's basically writing it for 
the sort of you know um, Michigan car manufacturer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The advertising agency and Chevrolet showed me how well the commercial had tested. And, and at the time that they asked me to do it, GM had just lo lost a billion one uh, in one quarter. And uh, I still turned it down. I turned it down for about three months, but they said it was the highest testing commercial they'd ever done. And then I was actually sitting in a bar in Detroit with my girlfriend, and a guy came up out of nowhere and said, how come uh, you never do any com commercials for the auto companies and help us out a little bit? And he walked away. He was nice about it. And he walked away. I said, why not? You know? And they, it's supposed to be one ad campaign for like a year and it goes for 13 years. Really? Talk about a blessing and a curse because that becomes something that everyone knows. Sure. And it's kind of this like smiling Reagan America or whatever it, it becomes. Yeah, and that's a thing that um, I, I, he must have to reckon with, which is the fact that, you know, as time goes on, his audience doesn't reflect his political values. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people that are generally going to his shows, I mean, he, he you know, so he has a lot of protest songs. Um, two plus two equals, yeah. Uh, <laughs> off of uh, the Bob Seger system um, is, is one of note, but you know, he's, he's, he's got some issue songs and I'm assuming a big portion of his audience wouldn't necessarily yeah. agree with him on politics. I mean, he seems, a lot of people have said that like he's, uh, that the modern day Nashville sound owes a huge debt to Bob Seger. I totally agree. I More mean, that Heartland even sound than Springsteen. goes into, I, I would say paves the way for somebody like Garth Brooks in the nineties. And then, you know, what eventually is big country on the radio but there's less um there's less politics in him than springsteen of course yes and it's like but but mainly you get the sense in the mid 80s he's just sort of needs a break yeah because he retreats though we haven't we talked about shakedown because <laughs> out of the clear blue sky glenn fry is supposed to sing the song for beverly hills cup two <laughs> or three which two one? two, two. <laughs> And then Bob Seger's one and only number one hit is Shakedown. Shakedown. So it, it, you cannot call this indicative of his style at all. And yet, there it is. Shakedown. Break down, take down, everybody wants into the crowded line. Break down, take down, you busted, busted. Shake down, break, break down, take just about the time you think it's alright. Break down, take down, you busted. Shake down, break down, take down, everybody wants into the crowded line. Break down. Oh, on uh, I forgot to say, on Like a Rock, he covers Fortunate Son, and you realize it's all good. of a sudden that he's um, how much credence was a was a big deal. It, it is true. I like, had that exact realization. I was like, oh wow, man, he can sing this song. Like he does a good job. I remember people thinking like when they heard some of his like songs in the early '70s, they're like, oh, is this a new credence song? Like mm -hmm. that. That's what they, they That's what he sounded right. like most for other people. Right. So then he comes back, 1991, does the fire inside, which I has a that. song <laughs> called "The Mountain." Oh, really? It's a pretty good song. But he's that. got two, not one, but two Tom Waits covers on there, and um, I think it just is worth uh, playing. Um, okay. Well, just just for for people who care about the sort of later period of, of Bob Seger, which may not be everyone, but this is. Uh, 
his version of New Coat of Paint, the Tom Waits. And this is 1991, mind you. Let's put a new coat of paint on this lonesome old town. Set em up, set em up. We'll be knocking them down. You wear a dress, baby. I'll wear a tie. We'll laugh at that old bloodshot moon in that burgundy sky. The reason I like it is because it sounds like he's he's not doing the studio production voice. He's doing his old voice. His like the mountain has come out to play. Yeah, I mean, I, I, now that you play that, I realize like I I'd like to hear more of stuff like that from yeah. him. You know what I mean? Like, it's like he could do more interpretive stuff and yeah. a little bit stylistically. He was he wasn't doing that. I mean, I guess Shakedown's a very strange song for him to do. But does he he does Downtown Train? Is that the other Wait he song? He does it on I think he does it on one of the greatest hits things. Okay. But no, the other Wait song on there is um, Blind Love. Oh. So then we have these this years where he's just got greatest hits. He does a few greatest hits tours, but he's really out of the public eye from here on out. Yeah. A lot of people through, you know, the reason way I'm the way I got the, my first Bob Seger greatest hits oh, was yeah. through Columbia House or BMG of Music course. Club. I mean, that's, that's it. I can't that's believe right. we haven't even talked about this yet because it's the perfect thing. It's like I'm I'm kind of interested in Bob Seger. I want to know more. Yeah. I'll put him down as one of my. I'm not going to go to the store. I'm not going to go to Sam worth Goody. A penny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go to Sam Goody. Yeah, exactly. So he does It's a Mystery that kind of no one really cares about at this point. Um, I skipped that one. <laughs> yeah, I skipped. It's not, it's not, you can't find it anywhere. Oh. Like half of this stuff. Uh, he, then he comes back and again, not until 2006. So he's like, he's married a much younger woman at this point. He's raising kids. Yep. He comes back with Face the Promise, which I think is okay. Uh, you know, he's got uh, the song, right. the song itself, Wait for Me, is pretty good. It's like a, uh, you know, and he's got a, um, uh, wreck this heart. You can you can find videos of him singing this stuff on sort of like Conan and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And at this point, he looks like like some of an older man. And yeah, I mean, he's like always. He's got a good look. He's I I feel like he's got the like Michael McDonald or Kenny Rogers hair. Yeah. Um, and the headband and like the black t shirt, black jeans, and black Converse. Like that's a good look for an old. Rocker, yeah, yeah. But, you, but you come to realize that he's like is like ten years older than the people who you think are his peers. Yeah, his peers are actually Mick Jagger. They're not. Um, yes, it's not Springsteen. Right. You know, he's older. Right. And this is one of the great things. So, but still, here we are. You know, now, now he's released two records. He released the Ride Out record mm-hmm. uh, in I th- like 2014, and he did 2017. He did I knew I, you went. I knew you went. Yeah. And that song itself, I think, is quite beautiful. I like Marie as well. That's kind of an oddball song. It's a good one. I mean, um, Forward into the Past is good. And he's got a beautiful song about Glenn Fry, who's now, who, who had died. But here we are in 2019, and there are not many rockers of his stature that are still, haven't been overly milked to death. Yeah. I mean, like, it's kind of exciting to see what he's going to do next with this full catalog. Do you feel ambivalent at all about your old stuff? Like, the reason why that's brought to mind is I was thinking of Simon sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, as beloved as mm-hmm. some of the Simon and Garfunkel songs are, mm-hmm. there's only about a half dozen of them that he feels 100% comfortable with, I yeah. think, yeah. when he hears them 20 years later. Yeah. How about you? I think I hear the youth, and again, I hear the... Uh, uh, the 
know-it-allness, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of my in my early stuff. Like I, I, I'm saying stuff that is totally wrong that I uh, I thought was right, you know. Yeah. Back then, I've got some some cockeyed perspectives, but I think uh, overall, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with it. You charged the very air I breathed and kept me coming back. You helped me through my darkest hours. You always were my friend. You gave me hope to carry on because I knew you went. I knew you went the mountain. So what's your what's your top five? Okay. So top five is what you got. Two plus two equals question mark. Uh, just because it's a protest song and it has that heavy sound. Yeah. Um, beautiful loser. Uh, because it changes the sound. Yep. And I think it's a wonderful song. Turn the page, a classic. Uh, Her strut off nine tonight, and uh, no man's land off against the wind, which. It's like this '70s ballad that's sort of the epitome of those ballad songs, but that, that you does. don't know, you like, don't know super it. well. Yeah, you're right. That song blew me away. Yeah, I can't. We haven't mentioned "Still the Same." That's that's a. I never realized that was about gambling. <laughs> I know. Well, again, I think there's a Kenny Rogers. There's something going on with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> um, for me, well, you? it's yeah. definitely begins with "Rambling Gambling Man." Um, uh, number two was. Uh, uh, Back in '72, the song. Yeah, I just love that. So I love that kind of travelogue type song of his, and I'd. It's remained one of my all-time favorites. It's got this unbelievable energy, and he's used spitting all these kind of like funny kind of insider reference referential lyrics that just sound cool yeah, of yeah, that yeah. time. And I love he's calling it back in '72 and recording it in '73. It is great. And then um, get out of Denver, which is the next year, just because I think it's a. A perfect song. It I is think perfect. it's a perfect song, and again, the lyric writing ability is is totally underrated. Every s- syllable of that tune uh, works. It's so funny that you you say that because literally every time I hear it, I go, "Should I listen to more Chuck Berry?" <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, next one was um, uh, shoot. It was off of uh, um. Uh, night moves. I wanted to say, uh, uh, rock and roll never forgets. Yeah. I absolutely uh, adore that song. And um, then uh, also the fire down below. I, I get it, it's it's got a vibe that's similar to back in '72 yeah. with him tell, making up all these characters and kind of you don't really know what's going on, but yeah, it's yeah. funky. Yeah. I like his sort of I like his soul side, you know, and I think that that's what's fired down. But that's why Tina Turner covered it. So I could go on. There's plenty of other songs. I've got a long, long playlist working, but yeah. those are my top five. That's great. You know, I feel like that the 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 Heartland sound that he he nailed down. Um, starting with Beautiful Loser, gave him room to keep doing those R&B songs and do them well. So there's just this like perfect balance of those. Yeah. And that's him. My number six would probably be Sunspot Baby. It's a good one. Mm, It's just fun. He's funny. Um, Should we send it out with Heartache Tonight? Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a hint of things to come. Maybe you guys will have to deal with an Eagles podcast whether you like it or not. (laughs) Think about how much royalties he's gotten off of this one.
Can do.